Welcome back to the program. If you've ever borrowed money for anything from a mortgage to a student loan, you've been impacted by LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, the global standard for interest rates. The problem is, like so many other recent aspects of our financial markets, we've now come to find that it's been rigged, that a system built on trust has been anything but trustworthy, that the gentlemanly system of the London bankers has joined the international movement towards greed and dishonesty at the expense of the average citizen around the world. The story has been reported extensively by my guest, financial reporter Aaron Arvelund. Aaron Arvidlund is a business journalist who's worked for Dow Jones, the Moscow Times, the Street.com, Barron's, and the New York Times. Her freelance writing has appeared in numerous publications, and she's the author of the previous book, Too Good to Be True, about the Bernie Madoff scandal. It is my pleasure to welcome Aaron Arvidlund to talk about her newest book, Open Secrets, Inside the LIBOR Conspiracy. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about what LIBOR is and, and also the way it evolved, because it did evolve in this world of kind of gentlemanly bankers of London originally, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly the financial world today is anything but that. Oh, boy, is it. Yeah, the uh, LIBOR, not a wild animal. <laughs> it's, um, it stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate, and um, it's a lot like the Fed Funds Rate except for the rest of the world. Um, so it became popular really formally in 1986. That's when the British Bankers Association said, you know what, We've, we, uh, we set the wholesale price for money. Uh, that's the rate at which the banks lend to each other. And then, of course, they turn around and lend to us at a slightly higher retail rate. But this really became the benchmark that foreign investors use, and that's why it became so widely used here as well. And I think one of the things that confused people back in, in 2006, mm-hmm. 2007, when this scandal first started to break, is where could the dishonesty be? How could something like setting interest rates lead to the kind mm-hmm. of manipulation that we began to hear about? Yeah, because at least in the U.S., the Federal Reserve sets interest rates here, and they're based on market transactions. You know, in other words, um, you know, what what people actually pay uh, to lend money. But strangely enough, uh, the LIBOR was actually set by gentlemen's agreement. Um, these guys would call each other up every morning and say, all right, what are we going to set the rate at today? And guess what? Opportunity made a thief. Um, because if they had a chance to move the rate up or down and help their own bottom line, you know, for whatever bank they work for, they did it. And this only came to light during the financial crisis. Um, as you remember, Lehman Brothers uh, filed for bankruptcy, and everybody's wondering, okay, which bank is next? And so, conceivably, the LIBOR should have been moving up, but it didn't move. And that's when the Wall Street Journal and some other news outlets started looking at it and saying, hey, this, this interest rate is all wrong. One of the questions that sort of begs to be answered in all of this is why was there not a scandal with LIBOR before this? Given how tenuous the system is by which it's set, why were there not problems years ago? Yeah, it actually worked quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that it be, became so important was because we all started using it, um, especially in the era of you know, the mortgage uh, crisis and the housing crisis here. Because, as you know, a lot of adjustable rate mortgages are pinned to LIBOR. 
as are student loans, credit cards, that kind of thing. So anyone who borrows um, may be actually paying a LIBOR plus some margin. And it became so widely used um, and so that much more important to us. Um, Even a lot of U.S. cities uh, were borrowing against uh, the LIBOR rate. In fact, the city of Oakland um, had an interest rate swap deal tied to LIBOR. So it infected everything. And um, the, the first admission of the rigging that was going on was in 2012. That's when Barclays came out and admitted that their traders had been uh, manipulating this rate. But they weren't alone. And that is really what my book is about. Mm-hmm. How did LIBOR become the international gold standard? How did it become something mm-hmm. that even student loans and mortgages and very uh, normal things here in America became pegged to? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. Um, it, it really started when... Wall Street began securitizing everything, um, packaging our mortgages, packaging our, you know, our cell phone bills, and selling those securities to foreign investors. Because let's face it, not everybody uses the Fed funds rate. Um, they needed an interest rate that everyone around the world would use, and that's how LIBOR became so popular. Um, there's also the era of technology. I mean, these these traders um, like Tom Hayes, whom I'm, I'm right about in the book. He and his buddies at trading desks from Hong Kong, from New York, from uh, uh, Singapore, London, they were instant messaging each other, emailing. Um, you know, they were rigging this thing really at the speed of the, speed of the Internet. And I think that's, um, that's how it, it became such a big scandal so quickly. How much of what was done, and we'll, we'll get to that in, in a few moments, but how much of what was done falls under the category of being illegal as opposed to just manipulative? Right. Great question. Um, it's only now, actually, that the British and uh, authorities have said this is a criminal act. On the other hand, the Department of Justice felt differently. Um, they actually, that agency uh, settled with a bunch of these Wall Street banks, UBS, City, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, and ch- charged them, I think, $6 billion in fines so far, um, saying this is fraud. And, however, no bank executives have gone to jail yet. Um, there is a trial coming up in January uh, by this, of this guy, Tom Hayes, in London, and I'm hoping that he names names so that we can get a better picture of who else was involved. And even once we know who else was involved, that doesn't mean it will rise to or be perceived as or, or prosecuted as criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Correct. And part of this, I think, had to do with the way the DOJ was run under Eric Holder um, and Lonnie Breer. They were very reluctant to bring criminal charges against bank executives, feeling that it would somehow make the financial crisis worse. I completely disagree. I think that um, it's good to put people at the top in prison rather than just, you know, blaming it on rogue traders. This is nothing of the sort. This is business as usual. Why was it not perceived that by taking criminal action against any of the the key people involved in any aspect of the financial crisis, 
talking specifically mm-hmm. about the LIBOR scandal here, that it wouldn't set an example that would create greater confidence in the markets and that it would have a positive mm-hmm. impact in that regard. Yeah, it's strange because you would think, why would, um, you know, why would the, the banking community actually want to undermine their own benchmark, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, well, it turns out opportunity makes a thief. They figured we can make more money by manipulating this rate than we can by doing the right thing. Now, there is um, there are some people and agencies who are suing Wall Street on our behalf. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are suing some of these Wall Street banks for $3 billion in damages. Some cities around the country, like the city of Houston, Oakland, Philadelphia, they're also suing Wall Street, saying, you guys... Uh, rigged this rate, we want our money back. And um, I'm really hoping that something comes of these and there might be some rebates coming for consumers. What's changed, if anything, in terms of the way the LIBOR is dealt with now? The New York Stock Exchange, Euronext, is is overseeing it. What's different now? That's right. They actually, New York Stock Exchange just took over the setting of LIBOR this past summer. So it really remains to be seen whether it's a better process. There's a couple things they've done. One is they're considering charging a license fee, kind of like S&P 500 or some of the other benchmarks. We'll see if that actually sticks um, because, you know, the big banks probably wouldn't mind paying. But what about the small community banks? Why, Why should they have to pay to use it? The other thing is we don't know how transparent the setting is going to be. I mean, is it going to be manipulated? Is it going to be based on true market rates, or is it just going to be the old gentleman's agreement? So that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. To what extent are these lawsuits criminal lawsuits at this point, or are they trying to bring criminal action, or are they strictly civil suits right now? Right now, the uh, the states... um, some of the agencies, and um, actually the brokerage in, in your backyard, Charles Schwab, they're suing in um, in state court. Charles Schwab, for instance, is suing in California uh, in, a, in civil matters. The criminal charges are coming from the DOJ, and as, as I have, have um, said ad nauseum, I think that the DOJ really should aim to try and get some bank executives um, to be held accountable for the rigging and not just, you know, the sort of lower-level junior traders. How widespread was the rigging? Do we have any idea? We do. So we, we know, and I know from um, reading thousands of pages of documents and emails and, and um, government testimony, we know that the rigging probably started either in the late 90s or early 2000s. And we know that also some traders individually were making, you know, $5 million a year, like this guy Tom Hayes, um, who goes on trial in January. He was just one of dozens of guys who were doing this. Um, But um, we know just based on the amount of damages that, say, Fannie and Freddie are seeking, that it was going on for years. Um, Fannie and Freddie want $3 billion in damages. So that's just from the rigging based on their mortgage portfolio. So that gives you a sense of how big it could be.
What is your sense of how these lawsuits will play out in court, whether or not the courts will decide buyer beware, and, and really there aren't those kind of damages to be had? Mm-hmm. I, think in the, um, I think in the civil suits you could see these cases go on for several years. Um, for instance, uh, either the Charles Schwab case, um, the Oakland case against Goldman Sachs could go on for some time. But in the civil, in the criminal uh, charges brought by the DOJ and the Brits, I think you're, you're, we're going to see um, some more charges being brought um, and possibly some more billion-dollar fines paid. Just yesterday, Lloyd's of London fired eight more people and is clawing back their bonuses um, from rigging the LIBOR rate. So there's more to come. And the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear an appeal on a bondholder class action suit. Where, where does that stand? What does that portend? Yes, so it's such an interesting case. So the Supreme Court in December is going to start hearing oral, oral arguments uh, related to the LIBOR suits, um, partly because there's so many of them. Um, and some of them are hung up uh, in what they call um, multi-district litigation. And the Supreme Court wants to decide if others uh, can move forward. So I think it's going to give the LIBOR case a lot, of, a lot of headlines. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Do you think that the LIBOR case, because of its European nature, because of its complexity, that in some ways, as far as the general public is concerned, has really mm-hmm. lost public attention, has really been subsumed by some of the other more homegrown or easier to understand financial scandals? Oh, for sure. I think this is kind of like the, um, this is kind of the final wave of uh, the scandal that came out about uh, the mortgage and housing uh, boom and bust. Um, and uh, I think this is kind of like the last, the last gasp of all the scandals. Um, so, I'm hoping that with the New York Stock Exchange now in charge of setting this interest rate, that uh, they can do it in a transparent way and in a way that's consumer-friendly. What has been the defense from the the banking industry and people like Tom Hayes, (laughs) the defense for what went on? Gosh, uh, you know what? They haven't put up much of a defense except to say, um, you know, well, it wasn't illegal at the time. Um, well, now it is. It's it's considered a crime, and um, they've paid six billion dollars in fines, which to me is really an admission of of wrongdoing, rather than take these cases to trial. Um, and the Department of Justice has really, like I said, they haven't really put anyone in prison yet, and I think that would really hold Wall Street and the City of London accountable. Is it your sense that there's going to be any change of policy with respect to the Justice Department? I really hope so. I think Eric, under Eric Holder and Lonnie Briere, the DOJ uh, eschewed a policy of, of putting executives in jail because they felt like it would actually make the financial crisis worse. Mm-hmm. I couldn't disagree more. I think um, it would have given the American public confidence that the punishment was real. Under Comey, I really hope that policy changes. Of course, the other aspect of it is that it's hard to imagine as we get closer to uh, a presidential election year that the DOJ is going to be putting banks and bankers who contribute an awful lot of political money in jail. Hard to imagine. (laughs) 
<laughs> right from your lips. Um, so uh, here, here, here for um, independence of government agencies. I, I hope you're wrong. <laughs> you, know, you you talked about the six billion dollars that's been paid in fines. The, given the mm-hmm. scope of this, and and I forget the number you used, but it's around what three hundred trillion in financial securities yeah. that are tied to LIBOR. Mm-hmm. Six billion dollars is a rounding error. It sure is. It's a traffic ticket. Yeah, the um, the fines uh, amount to you know a small percentage of the revenues that the banks make, and now there are several more probably to come. So, um, hoping it gets up in the double digits. But um, that's why I think prison terms would send a stronger message because they're used to paying traffic tickets. They need someone in prison to really. Uh, change their minds about business practices like this. Of course, the other question, when you start moving up the chain of of these big banks that were involved, it's who knew what and when did they know it, which is always very hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. That's right. So the trial of Tom Hayes in January hopefully will help reveal who knew what when. Um, What he's done very cleverly is hinted that the LIBOR rigging went much, much higher than him, that he was not not a rogue tra- trader by any means. He was not only tolerated but expected to do what he was doing for the benefit of the bank's bottom line and that there were many others like him. Is it your sense that he's credible enough even if he names names? I think so, um, because he has nothing uh nothing to lose at this point. He's lost his job, he's lost his reputation, and um, he can only gain by telling the truth. You've covered a lot, if not almost all, of the financial scandals that we've been looking at over the past several years. How does this fit into this pantheon of scandals that that we've witnessed? Mm -hmm. I think this is kind of the, the coda, if you will, to the financial scandals like the, the mortgage and the housing bust, um, robo-signing and so forth, because it's kind of like finding out, you know, the equator or, you know, um, standard time has been has been manipulated. Um, you know, we all kind of got where we were going, but it turns out somebody was making money off of that. And um, I think it calls into question the very basic trust in financial instruments. Um, LIBOR isn't the only thing that's um, been manipulated, by the way. There's some investigations into gold, silver, uh, the setting of crude oil prices, anything that, you know, is kind of set by gentlemen's agreement. Mm -hmm. One of the other really interesting aspects of this is the degree to which regulators knew about this early on and what they really knew and why they didn't take any action. Right. So in the book, I write a lot about this because there were some major players who knew that the Weber scandal was going on. One of them was Tim Geithner. He was at the time the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, but he later obviously went on to become Secretary Treasury. And he actually rang up the head of the Bank of England in 2008 and said, you guys are setting this LIBOR rate, and something's something's wrong with it. You've got to clean up your own backyard. And 
The head of the Bank of England, Marvin King, pretty much told Geithner to pound sand. Um, the LIBOR rigging continued for a couple more years, and it was only in 2012 when the head of Barclays, Bob Diamond, um, had to resign because Barclays admitted that they were among a dozen banks or so who, that had been rigging rates. So there were some really big business figures involved in this, and I'm, I'm thinking more of those type of names will come out. Mm-hmm. Big business figures in terms of, of key bankers? Oh, sure. Um, the head of Barclays, uh, Bob Diamond, uh, lost his job. The head of uh, Rabobank, it was a Dutch bank, um, Royal Bank of Scotland, UBS, and um, some other American banks are likely going to be named um, by the DOJ. And, you know, these involved, the CEOs of these of these banks are names we all know and love. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, these are these are big figures in uh, in global uh, finance. Do you think that there are American bankers, some of those big banks you were talking about, like J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citibank, that that are going to really feel the repercussions from this in terms of these lawsuits? That their executives will feel it. Mm-hmm. That is what I'm hoping will come out in the trials in um, January, and. Here's the thing. Strangely enough, the DOJ went after the foreign banks first. Mm-hmm. They haven't gone after the American banks yet, and I'm I'm sure there's some political reason for that. Um, so it's possible they're waiting for the election to go by um, for you know the new head of the DOJ, uh, Comey, to come into office. There's lots of reasons, but uh, boy, I'm sure hoping that we find that out quickly. But it's, of course, possible that we might not, and that all of this may once again be swept under the rug. It's possible, but I think with the Supreme Court hearing and um, with the headlines about the trials in these in these library traders, I think it's going to be impossible for the DOJ to ignore bringing more charges. How is this scandal perceived in the business community itself, the community that you report on regularly? Sure. I'll tell you, the folks like Charles Schwab, for instance, or, you know, the National Credit Union Association, or, you know, the city of Oakland, um, city of Philadelphia, where I live, um, they feel like they represent the consumers, and they're really angry about, uh, how should we say, being swindled, to use a polite term. So what I'm really hoping is that down the road, these folks maybe exact some some financial rebates for us because they're acting on behalf of small business, on behalf of the consumers, the borrowers, and um, yeah, we're the ones who who pay these rates, so we should be getting a fair fair rate, not a manipulated one. One of the things that's always so interesting about these scandals is that the CEOs, the leaders of the financial industry never really seem to be very concerned about public trust and public faith in markets. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that because one of the people that I quote in the book is John Reed. I don't know if you remember him. The former head of Citibank. But um, That's right. He actually came out not that long ago and said, we created a monster. Um, You know, banks got too big. They're too powerful. And they have absolute runaway business practices, and that contributed to the financial crisis. 
for John Reed to say that, that was a huge admission. I mean, he was kind of considered the godfather of, of finance in the 21st century because, you know, he and Sandy Weil helped get rid of Glass-Steagall. They helped create the current financial system. And for him to come out and say, you know what, we screwed up, I thought it was a huge admission. Not from too many others, however. No. <laughs> Nobody who's actually working at one of those banks. Right. But he, he, you know, he's, he can say that kind of thing now. Erin Arvidlund, her book is Open Secret, Inside the LIBOR Conspiracy. Erin, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 